Gross point blank. Never mind the bollocks, here's the sex pistols. This is off the list. Off the list has been off the grid for a minute, but we are back. It's not even that we've been off the grid, it's that we've been like out of time. <laughs> we've been off, we've been out, we've been over and under, and all of the other, what are those? Add all the other parts of speech that those are. I don't know. You you have the English degree. <laughs> I should know, but I never really was taught how to um, deconstruct sentences, which is a failure in the public school system. And with that, that we are back. Mm. back. Mm, now um, we're in back. case. Yeah, now we're back. In case uh, you're new here, or in case you forgot what we did when we were gone for so long, um, this is off the list. This is the podcast where we have things that we want to cross off our list namely movies and music i'm nadira i provide the movie selections i'm talking to my best friend oben he provides the music selections hello again everyone yeah man and this episode our film is gross point blank and our album is never mind the bollocks here's the sex pistols and we are starting with gross point blank which mm-hmm was released in 1997. It was directed by George Armitage. It was written by Tom Jankowitz, D.V. DeVincentis, I think I said that right, Steve Pink, and John Cusack. Gross Point Blank stars John Cusack, Minnie Driver, Dan Aykroyd. Of course, Joan Cusack. Anytime you see John Cusack, it's like an 80% chance that you'll also see Joan Cusack. Alan Arkin, Jeremy Piven, a young Jeremy Piven, a young Hank Azaria. The list goes on. It's a stacked, 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 cast the music was done by joe schrummer of the clash one of the things that i love to point out is just like the genius of the title if we're trying to figure out sort of what level our cylinders are firing on because they're firing on all of them and it is a lot um but gross point blank is basically okay here's the part where i'll say like it's one of those things where it's delightful not knowing until you turn on the film. So I would say mm-hmm. watch it first. I, I would if, highly recommend too, and it does not make you wait long. If you're one of those people who just needs to know what a film is about, or if you've already seen it, here we go. Gross Point Blank is about a assassin, a privately contracted assassin, who has to go back to his 10-year high school reunion. There's another subplot, you know, there's this girl that he was in love with when he was a teenager who he left in the lurch when he disappeared. But generally, the gist, there's a private contracted assassin. He has to go back to his 10-year high school reunion. Already phenomenal, genius, wonderful premise. His -hmm. name is Martin Blank. His high school is in Gross Point, Michigan. And of course, Point Blank is a term for shooting things i guess <laughs> um, so hence the title gross point blank it's a dark comedy it's genuinely hilarious um and not only do you have like that sort of turn of phrase already being great but then you also have the hilarity of this is a privately contracted assassin who goes to <laughs> a therapist he also is battling with another private contracted assassin who's trying to start a union so you know they're <laughs> really just, just really fucking great themes Ugh. and plot lines all around. It is, as soon as I saw it, which was only a few years ago, it quickly became just one of my favorite movies of all time. I love a film that is just so smartly and uniquely funny. And I think 
I assume then that you'll love it because it's also funny in the way that we specifically are. It, it's really hard to catch the all of the jokes and the level of the jokes through through your first time watching if you watch without subtitles because it's very just like line after line after line especially when John Cusack and Dan Aykroyd have the ability to just like be in the same scene together anyway that's enough of me talking about how much I obviously love this movie if you hate it that's fine we won't be friends again but (laughs) Ben what did you think about this film I think it'd be shocking if I hated this one yeah Um, it's very made for like yeah it it was I think like a good way to talk about how funny it is is that at some point i started trying to like write down jokes so that i could talk about them for the podcast but they were happening so fast i felt like i was missing them so i just put the phone down and just let it happen the movie is absolutely like you said like all of them have like such good chemistry on screen that like when they're like bantering it feels really authentic and also something that really struck me about the humor is that it was never do you ever watch like a comedy where you're like no one's that quick or no one's that funny or no one's that perfect everything feels very grounded um i've met people who are like this yes i've met people who can have a turn of phrases quickly i'm not this fast but i like to believe that you and i are like generally quick yes this is like a lightning level of comedic ability that i have seen in person that i generally find very attractive so mm-hmm. anyone who can do this hit me up yeah <laughs> whoever is the zoomer equivalent of john cusack nadira's <laughs> number is <laughs> but no it, it it really is true and i yeah i don't know it just it makes the whole movie so delightful to watch and also there's this like incredible pervading sense of of adult banality throughout the entire movie that is like my absolute favorite part to it where so many of the themes of the movie are just like normalizing his work as an assassin because of the fact that it is like his adult job and so he treats it like his adult job and he talks like he talks like his coworkers, like he talks to any other coworker. he tells his job in kind of the same exhausted fashion which anyone describes their work when at like a reunion or a dinner party and yeah. he has like even kind of like less shame associated with telling people his job than like someone who works in like as a lawyer yeah the the best running joke of the film like the without a doubt best one is that every single time someone asks him what he's been doing what he's been up to what he does he tells them outright that he's a professional killer of course they don't believe him because the idea is ludicrous as mini driver says like people joke about the bad things that they do they don't actually do them it's also really human in a really dark sad way like the idea of like He was really angsty as a teenager, so he decided to join the army. Psychologically, he fit this profile, so then he was farmed out to do basically like hitman work for the CIA, and then got to liking it and thought that he was smart enough to do it on his own and realized there was a market in it, so then just became a professional killer, like his own privately contracted professional killer. And, and it does a really good job of rationalizing him. Too. Yeah. And it, and it talks yeah. about the way that he's like, um, <laughs> the, the scene where he's trying to describe to someone who's freaking out upon realizing that his job is real. He's like, no, you don't understand. Let me like explain it again. I'm not killing indiscriminately. I'm just killing like as per, like he has this like very, like he has this very concentrated like rationality. You know, every single time he rationalizes it in the film, which is often, he rationalizes it for a little bit to his therapist. He rationalizes it to, um, of course, 
mini driver um whose name who the char- character's name thank you debbie um the entire film right is about identity that's the underlying like theme that's the thing he's struggling with and the entire time he rationalizes it in a in one line that's repeated throughout the film where he just says it's not me it's not me it's not me and i think that there's a lot of like him grappling with his identity in those types of in those types of ways which like how how perfect is that that you're grappling with your identity at your high school reunion right but i think that there's also like an actual consideration of okay so for instance one of the instances is joan cusack who plays his assistant and when she's bringing up this high school reunion you know he's like why do you keep talking about like i told you i don't want to go why do you keep bringing it up and she just says I find it fascinating that you came from somewhere. That's like one of the best lines in the whole movie. One of the best lines. And then when he's about to leave to go to his high school reunion, which the movie finagles in like a very smart way, basically he bungles a job because he bungles a job. The people who contracted him for the job are like, you have to do this one job for free for us. And (laughs) she's like, I'm getting a real Friday the 13th black cat feeling about this. It's in Gross Point, Michigan. You can go to your 10 year reunion and also do this job to make basically like our bosses happy. As soon as he's about to leave, she's like, don't forget your identity. And you know, know, she hands him his like dossier with like all of his fake identity stuff. And there's so many small quips about that throughout the film that it's not just him wondering who he is at this moment in time let me just run through all of the things that i love so much um joan cusack is hilarious she's the funniest one in the movie she's the funniest person in the movie and you only see her for such short period periods of time and it gives her such an ability to just shine you also realize that she's also someone who's human who like has to argue about you know the type of ammo that she orders because they fucked up the order of the ammo and like the guns and all the shit she needs but then starts talking to her friend about how like it won't be a boring soup because carrots and celery are just the base of the soup and you have to add other things to the soup like (sighs) she's just so good she's so funny she's so good mini driver as debbie plays the opposite of to me the manic pixie dream girl she's so quirky but still very grounded and still very lived in i love the two fbi fbi guys that are following them all around the turn of realizing so throughout the film they watch martin blank and they watch him court debbie and the entire time they're saying things like why don't you tell her why you're really here and you're like oh yeah like he kind of did though he did say he was an assassin he didn't say he was on a job right but then when you realize the ending which spoiler alert his job is debbie's father like his job is that he has to kill debbie's father you realize that there was actually a deeper point to why they were saying all of these things because they know who he's there to kill so you don't know that all of those like quips that they're making to him and even he doesn't realize it are because he's actually supposed to be killing her father this whole time that he's here as soon as you think like this the the film can't climb itself out of the plot hole not plot hole in the general sense but like the actual hole of the plot that um it has dug itself into it just keeps getting smarter and smarter and smarter to a degree that I find incredibly rare nowadays, especially for a movie that's at like a nearly tight hour and 45. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's two specific things that I think about when I think about how smart besides just dialogue and sort of turn of phrase that this movie is. One, so there's this theory about burning down the house, right? Um, 
And it's ba- it goes even back to Joseph Campbell and his whole like hero's journey. And it's basically like you have to render the, the, the starting point of the journey so that it, the hero can never come back to it. Like they can actually never come back to it. And in this, and it's like a common theory known as burning down the house. And in this movie, they literally burn down the house mm-hmm. <laughs> like in a way that is hilarious, fantastic, and just leaves him sitting on the grass, like wondering where the fuck to go next. Do you think they burned down the house when his house, it turns out that his house that he grew up in is actually turned into a convenience store. And, um, you know, he finds out that his mom has been sent to a facility and that she's she's mentally ill and she's on lithium. Um, and you basically find out really quickly that he had a very troubled upbringing. But you also find out really quickly that um, he also was one of those kids in school who <clears throat> was super smart. And all the teachers, you know, had a pool basically on like where all the kids are going to go. And they thought that he was going to go to an Ivy League and do like really big things. Turns out he did do really big things, just not in the way that they thought. Um, I killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? It's also (laughs) one of my favorite lines. And so you find out really quickly that um, his mom is sent to a facility because she's mentally ill. She's on lithium. It's heartbreaking. She like barely remembers or can recognize who he is. You go to his home. He finds out that his home is um, a convenience store, no longer his home, but he keeps coming back because he's baffled by that aspect. Right. And because where else can he turn to if not home as it exists in some form, then home literally blows up, literally blows up and he can't, he can't go back. He can't go back, you know, and I wish that I was smart enough to track where he goes specifically after that moment. I think he goes back to Debbie's. I think he goes back to Debbie's. And then, right, because then that underscores that, like, where can he go to as his place of comfort? Debbie, right? And so Mm. I think it just, like, underscores all of his actions after that. But it's just incredibly smart for them to actually take that phrase and really just burn down the house. The other quick thing is that you also realize that his father was an alcoholic through one simple, simple action after he sees, after he visits his mom and finds out everything that's been going on with her, he goes to visit his dad's grave. And as he's like pouring one out on his dad's grave, he ends up just emptying the whole fucking bottle on his dad's grave. That's when you realize his dad was an alcoholic. (sighs) I just love the movie so much. I love the movie so much. I feel like it's um, a movie that the more I rewatch it, the more I will be impressed by the writing. Because I was impressed by the writing, but like you said, a lot of it is so fast. It's easy to miss. It's so yeah. fast. Um, I do think watching with su- subtitles definitely helps. It's truly one of those movies that rewards multiple watches. And the last thing I wanted to say, because I've been talking about it for too long and I don't know how I'm going to cut this segment because I dearly love this film so much. The last thing I just wanted to point out is that the music... Joe Schummer's ability to craft a soundtrack that's just like perfectly fits this. And then to also have Debbie's job being a radio DJ so that she can implement the soundtrack to its best ability. was just so smart. The soundtrack is so good. It's so fulfilling. I ended up making a whole playlist inspired by this type of music, both genre wise, era wise, but also just feeling wise. Um, because it's so singular um and i think the movie really highlights how singular it is and they really fit well together and it just ends up being like the perfect soundtrack to this film i remember thinking the whole time being like huh the clash 
Because it's like it, the music is so not the Clash. Like it, it, no, but that's the thing is like that's actually not true. So what what I realize is that the Clash is just very versatile because two of their songs are in the film. You just wouldn't recognize that they're two songs by the Clash. Yeah, I did recognize. I mean, I recognize them just because from knowing them. But like I, I guess the the rest of the music. Maybe what I'm trying to say is that like. They are very The Clash, but only once you hear them side by side in the movie. And so, like, when you hear, like, 99 Loof Balloons, you're like, what? And then, like, as it keeps going, you're like, okay, that's fine. Like, (laughs) But it really underscored how versatile The Clash was to me. Like, in my memory, they were not as close to ska as they are. Yeah. And they are incredibly close to ska. So when you have songs like Mirror in the Bathroom, and then when you also have song like, but they're also punk enough to like vibe with songs by the Violent Femmes. The positionality of the clash in music and genre is so much more unique than I had thought it was. And I only would have recognized that if I had seen them like in a soundtrack with these other songs in a film like this, um, which I just found so fascinating and also another beauty of like the art of the soundtrack generally is just it can do that for songs and for music it can make you think about them in a different way and sort of like reposition them in your brains and how they relate to other music and stuff which i just think is great um but yeah i just want to give that a shout out really quickly because everyone i know who who i've shown this movie and who's loved it they've also specifically loved the music in it i don't know if someone didn't like this movie i feel like it's like a litmus test for friendship. I feel like I exactly. have like a, a really hard time being friends with them because it's just like, I don't know, it was just written for us. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> yes, moving on. The album we're talking about today is Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. The full album title is actually Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. This album came out in um, 1977, is potentially the defining punk album of all time. And I I think I mean this to say there are albums that people can only refer to as like, oh, once it was released, like nothing kind of sounded the same, like everything tilted towards the direction or everything kind of has an inflection point because its gravity is so high that everyone kind of changes its direction towards that sound. Um, other examples that I can think of immediately off the top of my head are, you know, Nirvana as being like one of those, um, you know, groups. I, I personally um, would categorize Blonde as a little bit like that and how much that added space to like our modern sound. And yeah, this album is that for punk. Like it is the defining punk album. And I have a little bit of complicated feelings on it in the sense that like every time I put it on I feel like I'm more doing like a listening assignment than I do I feel like I'm listening to a band I really love the music for but it's because this album is like potatoes to my musical diet like imagine if you didn't have a potato and you were showing a potato for the first time you lose your goddamn fucking mind because you're like this this is the best food ever but mm. then when you've had potatoes in your diet the whole, your to whole life. What kind of potatoes are you talking about here? Because we've done s- this before. We've done this before. And I think for the context of understanding this is white punk music, we'll use normal potatoes. Then you're wrong. <laughs> but okay. The first time I had a potato, 
as a kid, I, I as a kid, I hated potatoes. I only liked them in three forms, mashed, and of course with lots of like cream and butter yeah. and stuff to make it taste like not potatoes. French fries. French fries, loaded in ketchup, again, to make them not taste like potatoes. And then potato chips. Those are the only three ways I liked potatoes growing up. I didn't like them roasted. I didn't want them in my soup. I didn't want them baked. I still don't want them baked. Anyway, I'm, I'm better now. I'm not entirely there, but I'm better now. <laughs> I like roast them now and season them. It's the only thing you can do to make them like taste like anything. But listening to it when you have grown up with, you know, Nirvana or you've grown up with like modern punk music, it feels so reductive and redundant. And then you realize like, wait, no, 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 it was the first. This was just groundbreaking. And it's also the only studio album the they've only ever studio did. album they've ever done, I know. To speak to what you were saying, it's also a protest album, right? Mm-hmm. So it exists in a place in time where because we're not British seems a little date it like it it doesn't it doesn't strike that emotional chord that like listening to american protest music and specifically for me black american protest music in the states does and so i think it does like of course we're not going to throw on like god save the queen and be like oh yeah this is the shit even though it is the shit right it's just one of those things that's like it's it seems very um anachronistic in one of the best ways like it seems very like you could put it in a museum in a glass case and it could resemble this period in time where you know this really strong statement um in a certain period in time that like is really fitting for then but is sort of hard to emotionally feel now and i will also add this context because i think it's really important to know like we just said like you know like never mind the bollocks here's the sex pistols that album title got them in so much fucking trouble. They, it actually wasn't the original album title, wasn't it? Like no, the original album title was something around. It was it was God Save Sex Pistols. Yes, God Save Sex Pistols. And then Pistols. they wouldn't print that. So then they mm-hmm. said, never mind the bollocks. And then they yeah. wouldn't print that. So then they just had. Okay, I'm sorry. The one thing about the Sex Pistols is that all of the lore behind like the release of this album in particular, but also all of their songs and like all of the hoops that they had to jump through and like the, mm-hmm. the way like labels would drop them. And like, it is a bureaucratic miracle that this exists. Right. Like it is actually so fascinating. They literally, when they were ch- putting it on the charts and you have to remember 1970s, like charts were everything. Cause that's like where people were getting like a lot of their sense of music from when their the album was incredibly popular despite like its notoriety places would not print its name on the chart. It would leave a blank spot. Like if they were like number two on the chart, it would just be a blank fucking spot. Like the actual album covers though. So you're going to the record store, you get the fucking record, the actual album covers, they would cover up the title and it would just say the Sex Pistols. So like, even if you were to buy the album in a store, in a shop, it still wouldn't say the title on it. And so then they started, like one of my favorite things that I found when I was quickly researching, because I didn't have time to do a lot, when I was quickly researching, one of my favorite things that I found was <laughs> advertisements for the album began appearing in like music papers and stuff. They would show newspaper headlines about the Sex Pistols controversies. Like, so the music papers that were trying to politicize the issue would show like the newspaper headlines um, with the controversies. And then they would underline the message, which is like the most hardcore fucking message I've ever seen in my entire life. Mm. The album will last. The sleeve may not. Bro. So fucking good. 
Bro, so fucking good. So good. It's so good. That's like the most hardcore shit I've ever heard in my entire life. And of course, you can extrapolate that down to a, um, a sort of legacy or history of like you have bands like um, fucking Panic at the Disco and Fall Out Boy, you know, who have superbly long album titles and like song titles whose labels get mad at them for making these super long titles. And then, you know, they turn back with a song that's like, you know, th- that's called like the label is too upset at the title of this song yeah. so here it is you know and then you're like okay well that's directly taken from mm-hmm. a sort of like energy and um i don't know precedent of the sex pistols with that being said um i before we get too deep into it i actually did want to say um what it was giving um mm. it's giving and this is going to be very like yeah well duh <sighs> but also <sighs> also it's just such a vivid like this is one of those times where as soon as I put it on I was like I immediately know what it's giving like it was just so visually in my mind it's giving a sticky British pub floor Mm. so like when you go to a British pub and like the floor is all sticky because everyone has spilled their fucking pints on it and no one's washed the floor and like I mean, hey, they could have washed it in the past 10 hours and it got that sticky or they couldn't have washed it in the past five years. You don't fucking know. It's more that it's been that sticky since the fucking 1600s and they've just right. given up. <laughs> right. Like, it, it's just giving that 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 sensation. Like, I really don't know how to describe it. but The it's sensation so... of pulling your shoe from it. Yeah. And just like, but also like the, the sensation of like the accents around you and knowing where you are and like the dim lighting and the weird fucking Victorian looking furniture that you're like, why is this fancy chair here with the like metal eyelets you know on the seat <laughs> yeah. you're just like why, why is, this? is this in a pub <laughs> why is this in a pub with the floor that's so incredibly sticky and then you want a fucking um pasty or something so you go to the next door it's just it's or you want some like some chips so you go to the next the british chips guys so you go to the next door <laughs> you go to the chippy and you get your chips and you're at the pub and it's got the sticky floor can you tell i love england yeah so much? <laughs> anarchy in the uk or God Save the Queen, both of those tracks, like if you had to put a single track from this album into the museum and like have it playing on a loop, they're both, I don't know, it's a cliche phrase, like lightning in a bottle, but like I don't know how else to describe it. Like it feels like they took the essence of that moment and put it on wax and it's just like there forever. I feel mm, like yes. those three, Anarchy in the UK, God Save the Queen, and Holidays in the Sun. The the problem with like categorizing this album and like talking about it is that like it's almost the chaos of its creation and its rollout and its success that is like more important than the music to me. When I talk about the music, I have a hard time because I'm like, it's just punk. Like it just is what it is. Like these like screaming vocals the quote-unquote poor playing the mixing being like kind of bizarre um for the time especially where like if you were to put on um you know like how they were recording this like you know on wax or like you know on um tape 
like every file would just be blown out shit because every mic would have been gasping for its goddamn life after every single oh my song. God, yeah. Like, could you fucking? Oh my god, could you fucking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it really does seem like Johnny Rotten just came onto this earth with a fucking mission to let everyone know that like, no, this is like the way music is going to sound for the rest of your fucking lives. And even when you talk to the members of the band, like in their memoirs, they're like, we have no idea what the fuck he was doing. Like we were like, we were kind we were into it, but we were so lost. And it's why like bassist will appear for one song. It's Mm -hmm. because they, Johnny Rotten would be like, I don't fucking like, he just like would talk to them like a piece of shit the whole time they record the song and they'd be like, fuck this. And they'd leave. And then you get a new bassist and do it. Like the, like it's just so chaotic. It is such a fantastic encapsulation of like all of the cliches of punk, but they're only cliches. Cause they're the fuckers that did it the first time. I was distinctly reminded of this conversation on Twitter that I had with one of my friends. Have you seen the breakfast club? Like the radio show? Oh, Ben. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've seen this. I just didn't realize it was called The Breakfast Club. So obviously that movie is pervasive in many ways. Like, for instance, people can listen to the radio show The Breakfast Club and not know that it's kind of like a double entendre of these white people (laughs) in high school from the 80s, right? But he tweeted and he was like, I just saw The Breakfast Club. Like, I don't really get the the point. Like, why is it so popular? All of the the pairs that the couples ended up in were so predictable. And I was just like, did you ever stop and think that... Maybe <laughs> this was the first movie that did that. Yes. It feels so foundational that it's hard to talk about it beyond just like respect for what it did. Even though I will not lie to you, it is very rare that a Sex Pistol song will show up on a playlist of mine. No, um, of course. It's like you said, I, I agree with the fact that it feels kind of like homework more than easy listening. Okay. Yeah. We need to wrap. This was great. Any lasting thoughts about. Um, never mind the bollocks. Here's the sex pistols. I didn't realize bollocks meant balls. Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. We had to take a small sabbatical because Nadira didn't do her job and she didn't pick a movie. (laughs) So therefore, Ben couldn't pick an album, but we are back and I have picked a film for you. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I sent Ben the trailer for this film. It's one of the most seminal British films that was released in 1966. It was actually done by an Italian uh, screenwriter and director, Michelangelo Antonioni, who's also really famous in his own right for his Italian films, but this is his first English language film. It is a mystery thriller, um, but it's also very subdued and very visual in its way. It's called Blow Up. Just truly seminal, truly important. Some people have considered it as important as Citizen Kane. I don't necessarily know that that's true um but it's been called a masterpiece even by like ingmar bergman like like this is like Mm -hmm. a very like people who love films love this movie in like a very deep um way uh in a very like it's hard to appreciate this film if you don't understand or care about understanding films i think is really the 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 line like even martin scorsese i think he made a list of like 39 essential films for a young filmmaker and this was this was one of them so it, it's very very up there in terms of like the most seminal films of all time but specifically for british film um and it just really vibes with what we were talking about and it's a film that i kind of like have to show you as a film and music 
podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think now is the time. And you have chosen for me, sir. Yes. Yeah, so off of the idea of mod or like, you know, these people who in British subculture were listening to like modern jazz, um, I think that giving UK film and modern jazz, I don't really want to like bring it back to another kind of like jazz giant that we've been listening to a lot of. I want to bring it to some modern jazz that I think is currently coming out of the UK and is absolutely changing the game. I think that it will not match up perfectly in terms of vibe, but I think in terms of spirit, it'll be a really good fit. And it's Sons of Kemet's album, Your Queen is a Reptile. I'm not going to spoil anything about how the album sounds or is constructed, but I will just say this, which is when I saw them live, it was and might still be one of the best live shows I have ever seen. And I love the modern jazz scene much more than I love the old jazz scene. So I'm very excited to talk about it. Great. Uh, We went so over time, so I'm going to have so much fun doing this. Um, But... This was really, really great. I just, I love Chris Point Blank so much, and I'm so glad that I could share it with you. And that our friendship did not have to end. <laughs> yes, yes. That's Gross Point Blank, and never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, firmly off the list, should be off of both, both should be off of yours, calling it now. Thanks, man, and it's great to be back. Good to be back, and hopefully the next one won't take quite as long. Yeah, all right, bye, y'all. Bye. that should be the closer of everyone off the list is made by ben and me nadira our artwork is by rebecca pearson and our music is by cedric hawkeyes gross point blank yeah that's the intro that's that's all that's all we need.